digital copy. John chapter 12, uh, New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke. What's the next book? John is the next book. So let's stand together as we read the word of God together. The passage of scripture that we're going to read is recorded in all four of the gospels. Um, a lot of the New Testament, you can't say that about, at least in the gospels. The synoptic gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, almost all of their stories uh, coincide. God put them together. Um, the book of John is not like that. There's much that is in John that is not in the other books. And, uh, and yet this is one of the stories that correlates in all four. Now, all four, of course, would give uh, the crucifixion and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. But the birth of Christ, for instance, is not in all four. So there are there's some things to be learned. Uh, why? I have no idea the side of heaven. Um, but I do know that the book of John is what I suggest to people to read first after they get saved. Because the book of John is going to give you a great view of who Jesus is in the last uh, few months of his ministry. Though it wouldn't cover all of his life like the others would chronicle, the book of John is going to give you the heart of Christ. And so when people get saved, I like to introduce the book of John to them. And I say to them often, listen, I want you to read this for what it is. And if you don't understand it, just accept it by faith. Write it down if you have a question about it. But those things that you do understand, hold on to. And when you finish, go back and read it again and ask God to speak to you and give you understanding. And when you're done with it, you'll have a really good working knowledge of the Lord Jesus. Now, this passage of scripture, of course, is the entry into Jerusalem. Jesus is coming in. He's only a week away from laying his life down on the cross of Calvary and then resurrecting from the grave. He knows that. And now as he comes in, uh, think about the lessons that he could be teaching and the ones that he does teach. In the last week of his life, he did some of the most powerful preaching and teaching that he did while he was on the earth and to those that were with him. And so the Bible says in John chapter 12, if you'll notice with me in verse 23, and Jesus answered, answered them saying, the hour is come that the son of man should be glorified. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except the corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. He that loveth his life shall lose it. He that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. If any man serve me, let him follow me. And where I am, there shall also my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this cause came I unto this hour. Father, glorify thy name. Then came there a voice from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. The people, therefore, that stood by and heard it said it thundered. Others said an angel spake to him. Jesus answered and said, this voice came not because of me, but for your sakes. Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. This he said, signifying what death he should die. The people answered him, we have heard out of the law that Christ abideth forever. And how sayest thou the son of man should be lifted up? Who is, who is this son of man? Then Jesus said unto them, yet a little while is the light with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness come upon you. For he that walketh in darkness knoweth not whither he goeth. While you have the light, believe in the light, that ye may be the children of light. 
These things spake Jesus and departed and did hide himself from them. And let's pray once more this morning. Heavenly Father, Lord, this morning as we stand here before you, we're reading a text that reminds us of the last week of your physical life on this earth. And Lord, as we read your words, especially those that you spoke, God, we're reminded of your sacrifice, this signifying what death you should die. You told us here and you told your disciples over and over again that you would be delivered into the hands of wicked men and be crucified. But that three days later, you would be resurrected. And God, we stand in awe of that sacrifice. We stand in awe that you would love people like us so much that of all things, we, we should be called the sons of God. So, Father, as we open your word tonight, uh, this morning, we, we pray that you would help us. I pray that you would speak to our hearts specifically. I pray that you would give us understanding. I ask that you would help me, Lord, just to be your servant. I surrender to you. My will, I surrender to you. My mouth is your, as your mouthpiece. And I ask that you'd help me just to get out of your way, that you would be glorified. As it is said here, this is the hour that has come that the Son of Man may be glorified. So I pray that you'd bless the word of God in us. Meet the needs of the people that are here today, physically, emotionally, and Lord, especially spiritually. There may be one here, Lord, that is trusting in their own salvation in order to be saved and forgiven. But God, only you can forgive sin. We can't atone for our own sin and we must be saved by grace or it's not salvation at all. And so my prayer is that today, if there's one who needs to be saved, that they would realize now is the time. Today is the day of salvation. And then, God, for the rest of us that are saved, we pray that you would deal with us, not according to our sin, God, and we're so thankful for that, but according to your love and your compassion and your mercy, that you would help us to become more like your safe, your son. We ask this all in Jesus' precious name and for his sake and glory. Amen. Thank you for standing. You may be seated. It's barely a week before Passover, and there were many people who were already assembling for the feast in Jerusalem. Jesus, the Bible tells us, ascends the Mount of Olives into Bethany, and as was prophesied, he is carried into the city on the back of a colt to cheering crowds of hosannas. The multitudes had come. All four Gospels account for the special greeting, but in the book of John, God tells us why there were so many. It's because of the miracle that Jesus performed at Mary and Martha's house. You remember, Lazarus was dead. Jesus showed up, and he said, Lazarus, come forth. The Bible says that he came out bound hand and foot and he was resurrected from the dead. It seems that Jesus spent most of his ministry followed by people who were more curious than they were committed. The Bible tells us that in the crowd there were people who were some Greeks and who were not curious but actual God-fearers who, des- who desired to, the, truth. So, uh, the truth. So they worshiped God, the Bible says, in Jerusalem there in Judaism who upon hearing of Jesus and his fame and cleansing the, te- uh, the temple came to him. So the first regard is, let me just set up this. God says, I want you to know that these people came out to hail the Lord Jesus. And the, the vast majority came out because they heard of his miracles. They said, well, this is the guy that raised Lazarus. We've never seen him. So we want to go see what this guy looks like. Certainly he's got to be the Messiah or at least the king that we think he should be. And then a mixed in those people were people who are Greeks. And for a Jew, if you're, if you're not Jewish, you're kind of an outcast. And yet... God says in this picture, look, I want you to know that all four gates of the new Jerusalem are going to be open in all four directions and people are going to come. Why? Because I love everybody the same. The Jew, yes, but also to the Greek, the power of the gospel goes to everybody who will believe. 
And so he gives us this picture. The Bible says that they come to Philip and they desire to be with Jesus. And Philip was of Greek descent. And so they consent and they go. And Jesus at this point then speaks to the crowd. It's in this setting with a variety of people within hearing distance that Jesus puts forth some very piercing words, words that would mean far more after his death than before. In fact, in verse 23, the Bible declares, now there was leaning, I'm sorry, I have another on the wrong, uh, in the wrong chapter. Verse 23, the Bible says, the, uh, 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 then Jesus answered them in verse 23 saying, the hour is come that the son of man should be glorified. Notice that phrase, the hour is come. The time is right now. Now he had said before many times, had he not, mine hour is not yet. The time is not now. It's not now. It's not now. It's not now. And for many, for many years, people were trying to hear him and make him the king. And many times you'll read in the gospels that he went through the midst of them. Why? Because they knew he, he, they would take him and, and make him to be the king. And they wanted to set him up. And he kept saying, my hour is not now. My hour is not now. But this time he says, no, it is now. Now is when you're going to attribute glory rightfully. Now is the time. We're right here at the hour. Many times before, the Bible records the hour was not yet come, but now it had. And in the shadow of the cross, preparing to take our sin on himself, Jesus knows that his whole life on earth has led to this moment, to these last few days, when he would become the sacrificial lamb in God, and in doing so, for the first time in eternity past, he would be separated from God the Father while he suffered for your sin and for my sin. That hour had come. The hour that he knew before the foundation of the world that he would redeem God's people and pay for the sins of all men. He knew that hour was come. Truly, he was led to such a time as that. He was led by God to that appointed hour. Now, 2,000 years later, we assemble this morning on the anniversary of this hallowed sermon given by the Lord Jesus Christ. Just a week before we celebrate his resurrection. And we're face to face with the words of the Savior. I believe these words hold a very special application for our generation of believers today. The power of God's truth rests in the fact that it is unchanging. I'll say that again. The power of God's truth rests in the fact that it is unchanging. Regardless of the time in which it's presented. Our culture is rotting away in sin. Our justice system is as perverted as it has ever been. Our country is running away from God as fast as they can. And guess what time it is? The time is now. The time is now for Christians to set a higher goal. The time is now for believers to live on a higher plane. It's time for us to pursue a greater purpose like our Savior told us to do. And I want you to take your outlines this morning, and I'd like us to consider three eternal truths that Jesus gives to us before his death on the way down the slope into Jerusalem. And I've been on that path. It's an amazing path. And as you wind your way down the Mount of Olives, and as you get down to the base, and you look up at the big eastern side of the city, and you see the Sheep Gate, or Stephen's Gate there, which is the Sheep Gate, and you just think about Jesus as he's getting ready to go in, as as he gets down to the bottom, and all these people have hailed him, and everything ready, and these Greeks are desiring him, and then you stop. And Jesus says these words of all the words. 
It really is an amazing, amazing thing to stop and think about the time that God has brought us to and how it applies to us. Let's consider, first of all, Jesus gives us a guiltless purpose. What time is it? Jesus said the time is now. Look at verse 23 again. Jesus answered them saying, the hour is come. And then notice that the son of man should be glorified. Would you look down in verse 28 also? He says these words, father, as he seals this sermon, he looks to heaven and says, father, glorify thy name. As you search the scriptures to see what kind of life Jesus really lived, you'll find that he lived with one purpose in mind, and that purpose was to glorify his Father in heaven. Truly, that is a guiltless purpose to live for. Jesus said in John 4 and verse 34, Jesus says unto them, My meat is to do the will of Father of him that sent me and to finish his work. The Bible says in John chapter 5 and verse 30, I can of mine own self do nothing as I hear I judge and my judgment is just because I seek not mine own will, but the will of the father which hath sent me. I want you to consider this guiltless theme of glorifying God in your life. And I want you to see, first of all, letter A, it's a central theme in John's gospel. If there's one thing that you get clearly in John that you could probably get in other books, but not as clear, it is that there is one purpose for the Christian, and that is to live for the glory of God the Father. And truly, that's what Jesus lived for. In John chapter 17, just hours before his betrayal, the Bible says in verse For I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. Undoubted is the fact that Jesus Christ lived for the glory of God. Is that the purpose that you live for? Do you live to ascribe honor? Do you live to lift up God the Father? Do you live with that purpose in mind? Because letter B, it's a central theme for the Christian life. I was not saved for my glory. Jesus Christ did not come down so that I would be glorified. No, he came down so that I would be saved. And in doing that and bearing that fruit, guess what happens? God the Father is glorified. That purpose then is passed on to us, not just by creation, mind you, but also by redemption. The Bible says in Revelation 4 and verse 11, thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. Listen, For thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. You see, living for the glory of God, living for the purpose of glory, glorifying God, is the central theme of a Christian life. Jesus lived the life, lived the life, and throughout history there have been those who've lived with the glory of God as the central theme of their life. The beautiful aspect of living a life for the glory and honor of the Lord Jesus, listen, is that it's a guiltless life. You don't have to regret one thing that you've ever done for the glory of Almighty God. Because there is nothing insignificant to the glory of God. Whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do with thy might. We're supposed to serve diligently. Why? As we serve Christ. You see, there is no guilt in serving God. Somebody say amen, please. There's no guilt in serving God. It is a guiltless life. But mark it down. The individual that decides to serve themselves is going to have a little bit of guilt. They're going to go to bed with something less than a clear conscience. Why? 
Because what I was saved for, the purpose God saved me, the purpose that he created me, I'm not living for. It's the central theme of the Christian life. There are no regrets to living for the glory of God. There's no remorse living for the glory of God. There are no apologies necessary when you live for the glory of God. Because the life lived in honor of God is the life that God honors. Look at verse 26. If any man serve me, let him follow me. And where I am, there shall also my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. There's no guilt in that life. First Samuel 2 and verse 30 says, For them that honor me, I will honor. Let me ask you a question. We've read about Jesus' life, and you read of Jesus' life, and it says, Man, there's a life that I see in Scripture, though I've never seen it myself, that reads of the glory of God. When people read your life story, what will they see was the central purpose of your life? The pursuit of life, liberty, and the American dream? Will it be for the glory and the honor and the majesty of the Lord God Almighty? I hope it's for the glory of God. I hope when your epitaph is read and at your funeral, there will be groves of people that will stand and say, he or she lived. If I know anything about that individual, they lived for the glory of God. They didn't want any credit. They didn't want any, uh, any renown. They didn't want any majesty for themselves. They lived for the glory of God. The guiltless purpose. I see, secondly, a grave plan. He says in verse 23, this is what the hour is for. I'm coming to Jerusalem, and yes, you're hailing me. And even though the Pharisees said, hey, don't you hear what they're saying? You should tell them to shut up. Jesus said, listen, if they shut up, the rocks are going to cry out. What they're saying is true. What they're saying is right. And I deserve all that, all that praise. But it doesn't stop there. It doesn't stop with the glory of Jesus. He wants the glory to go all the way to the Father. And as he does that, notice what he says in verse 24. Truly, verily, verily, I say unto you. This is the plan. And it's a grave one. Except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and what? And what? And say it again. Except the corn of wheat fall into the ground and die. It abideth alone. That's a lonely life. When you don't die. But if it die. It bringeth forth much fruit. He that loveth his life. Doesn't die. Is going to lose it. But he that hateth his life. In this world shall keep it. Unto life eternal. If any man serve me let him follow me. Where I am there shall also my servant be. If any man serve me. Him will my father honor. It's amazing Jesus used the image of a seed. Something so small. Think about it. What's the last seed that you saw physically? What kind of plant was it? Use the seed to illustrate the great spiritual truth that there can be no glory without suffering. There can be no fruitful life without death. He used the illustration of a seed to illustrate the fact that there's no victory without surrender. Now that goes against the grain of everything this world stands for. Do you understand that? That this world will not teach you that. But Jesus did teach you that. Of itself, a seed is weak, isn't it? In fact, it's useless. In and of itself, it's useless. But when it's planted, 
the seed dies and becomes fruit, becomes fruitful. It's amazing. There's both beauty and bounty when a seed dies, when it actually fulfills its purpose. It's beautiful. If a seed could talk, and I'm not saying they can, if a seed could talk, there's no doubt that they would complain about being put into the cold, dark earth and be alone. But the only way it can achieve its God-given purpose is if it's planted. It's the only way it can. It has to be put in the ground, left alone to die in order for it to achieve the reason it was created. Can I just suggest a few things this morning? You know that God's people are like seeds. We're small and we're insignificant. But we all have life in us. We have God's life in us. However, that life can never be fulfilled unless we yield ourselves to God and allow him to plant us where he will. In the condition, in the situations that God sees fit, he plants us. You've been planted into your family. Your kids have been planted into your family. If your kids, you've been planted into your school. You've been planted into your neighborhood. You've been planted into your job. You've been planted into the circumstances of your life. You've been planted in a culture who hates God. Say, so, well, I don't like what's going on. Do you really think that God doesn't know that? God says, I know, but the time is now and I'm planting you in this dark hole. And you think you're alone. Well, if you don't die, you're going to stay alone. But I'm planting you there and I want you to die. We've been planted in a culture who hates God, a culture that is against all moral absolutes. Some of you have been planted in a place where you don't want to be. And that's where you have to remember, you're only a seed. See, when we think we're a little more of a seed, we think that we deserve to be on the top of the ground. We deserve to feel the warmth and we, we want to control the atmosphere. And God says, no, that's not where I planted you. Get in the hole. God's people are like seeds. Which means, letter B, that God's plan is for you and I to be fruitful. If we are like seeds and we have the life of Christ in us. Can I just say this? God knows what he's doing when he plants us. You've been planted in this church. And all God's people should say right there, amen. God puts you in this church. He knew exactly where you would be. He knew exactly why. And he wants us, his plan... For us to be is fruitful. Psalm 1 and verse 3. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. That bringeth forth fruit in a season. 
and his leaf shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. John fifteen eight. Herein is my, oh look, Father glorified, that ye bear much fruit, so shall ye be my disciples. That's God's plan. We are his seeds. He gets to pick where we're planted. By the way, he's a great husbandman. He knows how to cultivate. He knows when to water. He knows how to water. He knows if we're dying or not. The fact of the matter is, letter C, we can't bear fruit without dying. Wait, God's plan is for me me to bear fruit. Yes, but you can't do it while you're alive. You have to die. It's a grave plan, but it's a plan that God works. I know what I'm doing. We must die to self so that we may live unto God and bear fruit of the same. The Bible says in Galatians 2 and verse 20, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ that liveth in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Romans chapter 6, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed. Why? That henceforth we should not serve sin, for he that is dead is freed from sin. Now, if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we also shall live in him. That's it. I can't have life without death. I'm not saved without Jesus dying for me. And I cannot have fruit unless I die. The only way to have a fruitful life is to follow Jesus Christ in death, his burial, and his resurrection. In these words alone, Jesus challenges us today to surrender our lives to him. I want you to think about the contrast that he says here. He talks about loneliness or fruitfulness. If you fall into the ground, you abide alone if you don't die. But if you do die, then you're going to bear fruit, loneliness or fruitfulness. I have a choice in this life to live alone and isolated with nothing to show for the glory of God. If I live for myself. And by the way, there are plenty of people on this world, in the, on this planet, who are living for themselves. And you'll, they, though, though they might have a lot of things and even a lot of people, they're alone. Why? Because they won't die. They refuse to die. The contrast of loneliness and fruitfulness, losing your life or keeping your life, serving self or serving Christ, pleasing self or receiving God's honor. I heard about some Christians who visited a remote mission compound to see how the ministry was going there. And as they watched the dedicated missionary team work and work feverishly, they were impressed with their ministry. But they admitted as they were way out among civilization that the team missed civilization. I just miss civilization. One of the visitors said, and I quote, well, you certainly have buried yourself out here, haven't you? The missionary replied with a smile, we haven't buried ourselves. We've been planted. It's a great difference. Our Lord knew that he was facing suffering and death. He knew, listen, that he was being planted. He knew why he was planted. And his humanity responded to this. Look at verse 27. Now is my soul troubled. What is that? That's his humanity. And notice what it says. And what shall I say? I want you to take very close notes on that passage. It doesn't say, and what shall I do? Because he knew what he was going to do. What does he say? What shall I say? What am I going to say to this? Look, the fact of the matter, he was troubled, not because he was questioning the father's will, but because he was fully conscious of all the cross involved. What else can I say? Jesus did not say, what shall I do? But he knew what, because he knew what he was ordained to do. What shall I say? In other words, the hour of suffering and surrender, there are only two prayers to pray. Either Father, save me, or Father, glorify thy name. 
Now, which one am I praying? You see, many times when we start to die, we say, God, save me. I don't like dying. We want to get plucked up out of the hole. And God says, no, you don't understand. It's in that hole. And it's there that you're going to die. And when you die, you're going to bear fruit. And it's for my glory. And we said, but no, God, I want my glory. Save me out of this hole. God says, you don't understand. I've got fruit in you. It's my life. My whole son's life work has poured inside of you. And I need to get that out. But you've got to die. The Lord Jesus Christ chose the latter. And clearly it was for the glory of God and the saving of souls. Will you turn in your Bible to Hebrews chapter 12 for a minute? Jesus didn't say, save me. He said, Father, glorify thy name. Hebrews 12 and verse 1 reminds us. Of the host of heaven that looks down on our race. As witnesses. As to the reason and the purpose of our life. Wherefore seeing we also are compassed about verse 1. Was so great a cloud of witnesses. Let us let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us. And let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Look at looking unto Jesus. The author and the finisher for a finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Why is that important? Because of verse three, the Bible says, for consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. God is very clear that there is a grave plan involved in this guiltless purpose. If I'm going to live without guilt for the glory of God, I must die. No wonder Paul said, I die daily. Every day I wake up alive, I need to go to the grave. Every day I must surrender and say, God, I want to crucify my flesh a new again by the power of the Holy Spirit. I am mortifying the deeds of my flesh. Why? So that I could live by the Spirit of God. Guiltlessly. For your glory. We see a grave plan. Lastly, there is still a groaning problem. A groaning problem. Look at verse 25. He that loveth his life shall lose it. He that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. If any man serve me, let him follow me. And where I am, there shall also my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. See, what's the problem? We really love our lives, don't we? Man, did Jesus just nail that on the head or what? Over and over again. It's interesting. You say, well, how much do we really love our lives? Well, since you brought it up, Paul said when, you talk, when he was talking to husbands and wives, husbands love your wives like Christ loved the church. But he also said that you're supposed to love it like your own flesh. It's like he was looking at the church going, you know, you know how you love yourself. You know, guys, how you can only think of yourself. You know that you always have an angle for yourself. You know, it's self-aggrandizement. It's self-promotion. You know, 
So like you love yourself, you need to love your wife. We love our side, we love our lives and, and we, we, we love a little too much at times. Mother was preparing pancakes for her sons, Kevin five and Ryan three. The boys began to argue over who would get the very first pancake and the mother saw the opportunity for a moral lesson. So she decided to be a teacher. Teachers take every opportunity at the moment of teaching and she taught this lesson. She said, well, boys, if Jesus were here, he would say, let my brother have the first pancake. I can wait. Kevin turned to his younger brother and said, Ryan, you be Jesus. <laughs> Isn't that true? What, what, what's, what's Kevin's problem? Kevin really wanted the pancake. Kevin really loved himself and so do we. That's the groaning problem. You know, the Bible says in Romans that the whole earth groans and travails for the return of God so that he could make it all new. And we have a groaning problem. It's our own life. Two reasons. Letter A, we seek a comfortable life. And, and just write this down somewhere in your notes. Dying is uncomfortable. You ever think about how you're going to die? They kind of wig you out a little bit. I have a fear of a lot of things. Spiders are one, don't judge me. Snakes are another one, don't judge me either. I hate both of them. I, I don't fear necessarily, and I've been in the presence of a rattlesnake and different snakes, not on purpose. But I don't, I don't necessarily fear a snake bite or a car accident. Um, I don't fear necessarily falling out of the sky, but I've had those dreams. Um, I fear drowning. I... I if you ever watch a movie or something and you see people struggling under the water, I find myself going, you know, I start almost hyperventilating watching the movie because I, I just, I, I have a fear that, that, that strangulation. I've always had a, a fear of if my, my brother was playing with me and he put a pillow over my head, not trying to kill me, just being a mean big brother. Um, or, you know, if my dad or my brother would smother me and, and pin me down and get, to where I felt like I couldn't breathe. It was just, I mean, it was, I almost became the Hulk because it was just so scary for me. So I have that fear of dying. I, I, uh, I just don't like it. I don't like thinking about it. I have a fear of drowning, not dying, of how I'm going to die. Um, and our life really does take on that characteristic in many ways in different forms. You may not fear drowning, but... You don't like things that are uncomfortable. So you do your level best to make your life as comfortable as you possibly can. We all do. We spend most of our life working toward comfortability and minimizing unpleasantries. We condition our air. We ice our drinks. We heat up our coffee. We love to have our food delivered hot, fresh, on time, the way we like it. We like our chocolate not too chocolatey and our tacos not too spicy. We like our church close to home, easy to get to, comfortably cooled and padded seats. And if at all possible, we'd appreciate the sermons to be 20 minutes long. We like a comfortable life, don't we? Um, my son said, Dad, he, Preston got a car in Texas. And uh, he was pretty excited about it. It was a used car. It's the right kind of car. That means it's a Ford. And he, uh, he, said, he said, Dad, I have... I have heated seats for the first time. I was like, "Ah, you have arrived, man. Austin got a, new, a 2012 Explorer heated seats. They may have air conditioning seats too, I'm not sure. And, uh, and that's comfortable. 
My dad used to say, look, if you're going to buy a car and you get less than what you really want, you're going to regret the rest of your life. And I'm like, it's just a car, dad. And then I realized he's right. The first taste you get of the comforts, leather seats and auto climate, you know, you said, what's your favorite temperature? And now we have auto start and your car automatically knows to set the temperature to that. And it just starts cooling or heating to that. How awesome is that? Right? Why? Because we love our comfort, don't we? That was when I was down in, in Nicaragua, I was pleasantly surprised when people, the distance they would travel to get to the church service and what they would have to sit on for three hours listening just to preaching. And you go, man, I'm sitting there and I'm like, my back is killing me. I can't feel my legs. I can't understand what he's saying. God, I'm hungry. I'm hot. This mosquito won't stop. <laughs> and all this stuff we're talking about. Then you leave there and all you talk about on the taxi ride all the way back to the whole well, hotel is it's so hot and is it, what's the humidity and do you have water and can I change? And when I was in El Salvador with Pastor Chapel and Brother Montano, some of you guys remember, you guys remember Luis, um, that's all I did, complain. We get in the van, someone just got led to Christ, like 15, I'd be like, praise the Lord, 10 minutes later, it's so hot, I need to change clothes, can we get some ice cream, something cold, just uh, uh. constantly, constantly, Why? Because we love a comfortable life. When you get planted in a dark, cold hole and you're left there to die, there's nothing comfortable about it. God never promised his disciples comfort, did he? Never did. He said, look, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath no more to place his head. So if you're going to follow me, you're going to have to deal with that. And there was only a few that did. We have a comfortable life. We seek a comfortable life. That's the problem. I want you to write the second thing down, letter B. We may seek a comfortable life. We have to surrender to a conformable life. And a conformable life is not ever going to be comfortable. A life of death requires a daily renewing of our purpose in life. As we've been called not to conform to an earthly likeness, but to the likeness of the Savior himself. Romans 12 and verse 2, and be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. You see, the Lord Jesus didn't have to have a renewed mind. Why? Because his mind was always stayed on thee. His mind was always for the will of the Father. He only spoke what the Father told him to speak. He only did what the Father told him to do. That's why he could look at his disciples and say, look, if you don't believe that I'm the Father, just look at the works. And for the works, they understand that the Father's in me and I'm in the Father. Okay? If you've seen me, Philip, you've seen the Father. Let that suffice. And if you can't take my word for it, look at my life. Right? That's what he said. If you want to conform, then Jesus didn't have to renew. But we do. Why? Because of the groaning problem. We wrestle with our own flesh every single day. I want to be comfortable. And the Spirit says, no, be conformable. But I like comfort. No, you need to conform. But I want comfortability. No, you need conformability. This is what you need. Why? Ah, because of my purpose. is to bear fruit. And you can't do that and be comfortable at the same time. It's impossible. The best roses, the best fruit that you can have come from pruning. Read John 15. 
You can't have life without death. And you can't have fruit. You can't be conformed to the image of Christ without being renewed every single day. In Romans chapter 8 and verse 29, for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to what? To the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many others. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 9, Paul said, And be found in him, not having mine own righteousness which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness of God which is by faith, that I may know him, listen, and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. That's what Jesus is getting through. We're all seeds. We've all been planted. Now, God's plan for us is to bear fruit. Why? Because his purpose is to live for the glory of God. But there's a problem. It's us. It's your life. Well, I can't do this because it's not comfortable. Or I won't do this because it's not comfortable. And God says, then you can't bear fruit. Then I don't get glorified because all you're seeking is comfortability. And I want you to conform. I want you to let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, and become a servant. Why? The Bible says, if any man serve me, let him follow me. And where, if you, if you, uh, and where I am, there shall also my servant be. It's not lonely there. And God says, if any man will serve me, him will my father honor. You see, if I live for the glory of God, God says, now you're going to be honored. If you live for the glory of self, God says, I'm sorry. I can only lightly esteem you. I can't honor you. Why? Because you won't die. Warren Wiersbe said, God does not expect, expect, ah, God does not expect us to be conformable. I'm sorry, to be comfortable. But he does expect us to be conformable. That's what he expects. Now, has anybody ever, has anybody had expectations that were dashed? Every married hand should go up. <laughs> yeah, I thought this was going to be married and it came in way down here and now I'm just living it, you know. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> Nobody hopefully is surviving marriage, but we all have expectations, right? Anybody ever have an expectation at your job? And it came down way low. Everybody, that's a little too many people going, oh yeah. That's a, expectations of a friendship, expectations of living in a place, all that kind of stuff, you know. Uh, there, there was a guy down in Lancaster. I'm sick of California. I'm going to move to Tennessee. Like every other Tom, Dick, and Harry, right? I'm moving to Tennessee because something's going to happen and it's too dangerous to live here. Two weeks after he arrived in Nashville, the guy drove a, a motorhome with the bomb. Boom, blew it up. His expectation? Right out the window. <laughs> Your expectations. Listen, God has an expectation of our life. It's to be conformable. And he cannot conform someone who won't die. We have a mortician in the audience. And they conform the dead body the way they want to at will. Because the dead body has no will. <laughs> you know, it's interesting about the dead. You can't offend them. You can't. They don't care what you do. If I drove a hearse down here from the funeral home at 85 miles an hour. He's not subject to the law of speed. Doesn't care. If I get pulled over and have to pay a fine, he doesn't care. I could yell and curse at him, doesn't care. Not that I would curse. I could call him all kinds of names. He's dead. And I can take him out of that casket. And I know I'm not trying to be gross, but I can manipulate him however I want to. Doesn't matter. Why? Because he's dead. 
And that's what God wants out of us. Great peace have they which love thy law, and nothing shall offend them. I want to be dead. Why? So that I could bear fruit to the glory and honor and the majesty of God the Father in our heaven. The time to live for the glory of Jesus Christ is now. It's now. It's not tomorrow. Don't leave here and say, well, I'll surrender tomorrow. Well, I'll surrender tomorrow my devotions. Well, I'll, I'll get my life to I'll die tomorrow. Don't, don't, no, no. The time is now. The hour is now. The, but the only way for that to happen is for you and I to willingly submit to where and how the Lord has planted us. We don't like the whole. That's where God's brought us. When we do that and we die, then we bring forth fruit to his glory. I want to give an invitation this morning. And I want to invite you to a funeral. Yours. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your amazing grace. Lord, the week before Easter, you gave this powerful illustration of seeds. And God, we're your seeds. And Lord, I have, I have in my life resisted being planted. And it wasn't until I surrendered that I was able to see fruit. God, I, I would, that would be the case for all of us. That today we would be insignificant again, little in our own eyes, as Samuel told Saul. And we would just become a little thing. We would surrender to your planting. We may not like the circumstances in our life. We may not like the situation that we find ourselves in. But God, you've planted us there in order to bear fruit that would please you. We've got to die. Today, Lord, we're holding a funeral, individual funerals. And I know you're inviting us to that cross in our life where we would surrender and say, God, I'm tired of living. I want to die. I'm tired of trying to save my life from losing it. I want to lose it to you. And Lord, I pray that for those decisions that you would honor your people. With heads bowed and eyes closed, I'm going to ask Jenna to play. With nobody looking around, if God spoke into your heart this morning, could I just open this altar up? In fact, let's stand together with our heads bowed and eyes closed. And if you feel the Lord leading you to this altar to surrender, to, the, to a funeral of your own, to say, Lord, I'm here. I'm here to die. I'm here to surrender my life to you. I'm here to live for the glory of God. If that's your heart and you feel the leading of the Holy Spirit, I want to invite you to come this morning and spend some time in prayer. Lord, I'm here to die. People are coming. People are praying.